Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, we are bringing you part two of my conversation with Rachel Weiser and pediatric palliative care specialist, Dr. Sharon Bell. If you have not already, I recommend listening to part one of our conversation first, but much of the content in part two can stand alone if you don't have the time. With that, let's jump right back into the conversation. The next voice you will hear is Rachel giving us an update on our case. So after being discharged from the hospital, he has followed up closely with his pulmonology team. His disease continues to progress, and unfortunately, he is not a candidate for a lung transplant. His providers are starting to consider when it would be appropriate to introduce hospice. Dr. Bell, we've spoken a lot so far about palliative care, and we've introduced the term hospice a couple of times. What is really the difference between the two specialties? Okay, that is a very good question because that is probably the number one question I'm asked. What is the difference? What is the difference in palliative care and hospice? And actually hospice is palliative care, but it is palliative care that is delivered when the patient's life expectancy is less than six months. Now, that is not an exact science, and particularly in pediatrics, the trajectories of their illness and how their illness is going to proceed can be very different from one child to another. And you can look at cystic fibrosis and even what's happened over the course of my career with the trajectory of that illness. But that is a point, and there are criteria for the various organ systems disease states that can help guide whether that patient is appropriate for hospice or not. I find in pediatrics that I have to often paint the picture of this patient's status with their disease. So they may have multiple comorbidities that each one individually might not put them in the category of being a less than six month life expectancy. But when you put them all in the same child, they really are. And that has to do with functional impairment. And are we seeing functional decline in what this patient is able to do? Are they more short of breath? Are their pulmonary function tests declined significantly over the last period of time? The options they have for treatment does affect that, but not completely on the pediatric side. And that's the nice thing with pediatric hospice. Because of the concurrent care provision, we are able to have our pediatric patients receive and families receive hospice services concurrently with their life prolonging and curative care measures. And that's very different from the adult hospice model. And that is a game changer in pediatrics because it has made acceptance of hospice be much better. And I know working in home hospice on the pediatric side, I can't tell you how many times families have said, why didn't they tell us about hospice sooner? Because it gave such an extra level of support with a nurse coming to the home once or twice a week to check on that child, to address symptoms, do an as-needed visit in the home and address symptoms at one o'clock in the morning. Or we've had to do several visits this week because we're not doing as well. We need to get you in with your provider and get some further evaluation because I think you need that next step of involvement to make your symptoms better and, and to help this not become a hospital stay, which is many of the families have as a goal to avoid having to be in the hospital because of the barriers it puts in maintaining their normal family life. So much important stuff you just covered. Long story short, hospice is indicated when the life expectancy is less than six months, but we need to be really careful when we start seeing their functional status decrease rapidly, especially if they have multiple organ systems involved. 
Absolutely. And it's looking at the overall picture. And and sometimes the treatment for one comorbidity actually makes another comorbidity worse. And I'll give you an example of that for a patient who has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and severe seizures. If their seizures are poorly controlled, they often have more aspiration and then they start having more hospital admissions for aspiration pneumonias or more chronic lung disease. And so you see how one can lead into another. And if you are just focused on treating the seizures, you miss the big picture that, oh, they're being in the hospital because of their chronic lung disease. I want to reiterate one point that I heard you say that I think is a really important point. In pediatric hospice, you can still receive life-prolonging therapy. That is absolutely true. And so I have taken care of patients in the home setting who had end-stage heart failure. They were on home continuous melanone infusions and awaiting transplant, and they remained on hospice until they were recovering from their transplant. So they actually got all the way aggressive IV therapy in the home, were able to undergo a heart transplant while they are on hospice services. So yes, there is no, they can have chemotherapy, they can have blood transfusions. And the way I put it to families is that this is important for you to understand. And I talk a lot about the concurrent care provision because families are very worried. Is this going to take something away from my child's treatment? And I emphasize we don't want to take anything away that might buy you one more week with your child. And so we don't have to do that. And there are often misconceptions because of the adult hospice model. And so we spend a lot of time breaking those down and saying how this is different. Very good. So we talked a lot about all the benefits of hospice, but I imagine when you think about starting that conversation with a family, they might feel like the medical system is giving up on their child. That is a very common misconception. And what I usually talk to families about is that they do have the choice if they want to continue their aggressive care. I talk about what they want. What are the family's goals in hospice? Do they want to stay out of the hospital more? That's a very common goal. So how can we do that? So we can really concentrate on the symptom management that's usually a flare-up in symptoms that brings them to the emergency room and subsequently into the hospital. So how can we manage these symptoms better? And it's about discovering what of this illness is impacting them the most. We do the same thing when they come in for a sick visit. We ask, why'd you come in today? What made you come in today? You've had this problem going on for two weeks. Why did you come today? That'll give you a lot of clues to be able to help these families. Seems like a common theme today is just ask the questions open-ended and be willing to listen to the answer. A lot of the research also shows that families involved in palliative care and hospice have increased quality of life and sometimes even prolonged survival. Is this something that you see in practice? Absolutely. They have done studies to show that patients who receive hospice care, same disease process, the same stage of the disease, patients who receive hospice care live longer than patients who do not. And it is very easy to see. It's because they get watched. They get watched closely in the home. They're not sitting at home with the parents like, I really don't want to go to the ER. I really don't want to go to the ER, so I'm going to hold out and hold out. And then the child becomes really sick and might end up not only in the ER, but in the ICU setting. The nurses visit regularly. We try to have a consistent nurse. So they realize this is off their baseline. Something's not right. And they can get them seen sooner or they can even contact their provider and initiate a a treatment in the home setting that otherwise, if it was allowed to go on, might result in a hospital stay. 
Sure. Even more support for the value of ongoing palliative care and hospice care. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bell, now kind of focusing in on towards the end of life, what physical symptoms seem to be the most troublesome for our patients and their families? Probably at the end of life, um, shortness of breath or dyspnea is the most significant symptom. Part of the natural dying process, whatever the cause of that approach to death is, is that they have fluid buildup in their lungs. They also become more sleepy and less responsive, and that's very distressing to families. They want for their child to be able to interact with them as long as possible. Some of these children require medications for pain that do create sleepiness. And I talk with the family about that, but we have to prioritize the child's comfort. And most families, when you couch that, I am not trying to make your child sleepy with this medicine. I want to control your child's pain. And very often you will actually see kids become more active and act more like their self when their pain is adequately treated. But shortness of breath is difficult. We can help that with positioning and regular turning the patient side to side if they're not moving on their own, propping them up. Oxygen does give some support. If it makes them more comfortable, fine. In children, it often aggravates them. So if they don't want that oxygen, that's okay too. But it is certainly something that we offer. A cool environment, a breeze, a fan sometimes will help ease shortness of breath. And if it's more severe, we have medications that can ease that work of breathing. And oftentimes the medicines for pain and the medicines for shortness of breath, if you're using an opioid and a benzodiazepine, they may act synergistically and act even more with the two of them together. And so we'll often in the very last day or two of life actually alternate those medications so that the family can give something every couple of hours and achieve much better symptom management over time. It's a changing thing. I have spent many times having conversations with families kind of every 30 minutes during that active dying process. And I may be supporting them in the home or I may be supporting them by telephone. We use video technology and a family can show me, take their onesie off and let me see how they're breathing. And then I can guide them with how we can treat that, how we can make them more comfortable. So a multi-pronged approach, right? So you do the yes. non-pharmacologic, like the fan the positioning, and then you know, appropriate doses of opioids and benzodiazepines as needed, right? Absolutely. And those can be a key to keeping them comfortable because it's hard enough for a parent to watch a child die. To watch a child die suffering is far worse. Something the family can do at home and feel like they're doing something to help contribute yes. to the comfort of their yes. child. And we can manage really well over 95, 96% of patients in the home setting, and we can manage that without needle sticks. We teach families. We do go to alternative delivery methods for medicines. So sometimes we can give medicines to someone who's unconscious through the buccal mucosa and just you teach them to turn their head, teach the parents how to give that. And that's something that the hospice nurses do, but that's something as a provider, I'm going to talk to the family. We have ways that we can manage this and it doesn't have to require needle sticks. And we do sometimes access a port if they have a portacath or have have a probiotic line, we may switch to an IV infusion and need to do that for symptom management. But the vast majority of patients, we don't even have to do that. You know, Dr. Bell, before really taking a deep dive into these topics, researching for this podcast, I really assumed a palliative care physician's job was complete after the patient had died. Now I know that that's absolutely not the case. How does palliative care continue to help our families in dealing with grief through the bereavement process after their loved one has died? Part of that 
care for the family and bereavement actually starts before the patient dies, though, because families grieve. They grieve the loss that's coming before it ever comes. And so helping prepare siblings, helping prepare patients. In our team, one of the dynamics that often works is I may be talking with a parent and the child life specialist goes off and is talking with a child. And the children often, they know what's going on. They know far more than adults give them credit for, but they may not be willing to talk about that with their family because they realize that it upsets their parents, but they can voice and talk about that with a child life specialist who is just sitting and playing a game with them or doing a puzzle or doing a art activity. And so preparing them for that. We provide bereavement services. And one of the things that's important, I think, is having a pediatric specific bereavement. Hospice includes bereavement services up through 13 months. And when I first started hospice, like why 13 months? Why did they randomly pick that? But that is actually to get them past the anniversary of the patient's death. But realizing that every holiday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, the first birthday after the death, all of those are milestones that are going to be very difficult for this family. And so reaching out at regular intervals, that is where your relationship that you had with the family is very helpful. If you get involved very late and you don't have a relationship, then those bereavement calls are a little more difficult because you don't have a basis. But when you can call a family that you followed this child for two years, and then they lose their child, you can talk and you can go and have a cup of coffee with them and talk about the fun times that you had or the times that you saw that child be resilient despite their illness and talk about family experiences. And one of the things I often do is get families to share pictures of their child. And I've even done this in the room with an actively dying child, but to have that parent pull out their iPad, show me some pictures of them. And just that allows you to to get to know they are sharing their heart with you when they're sharing those pictures. But it allows you to open those conversations and to carry that into the bereavement care is very important. It is really important that families receive bereavement follow-up. And what I never want to hear is that the family's only follow-up was a hospital bill. Mm. That is an injustice mm. to our patients. We need to honor every child's life, no matter how short makes a difference for their family, and it makes a difference for the medical caregivers that touch that child. And I can't tell you how many times I have been blessed by seeing how a family gathers around a child and how a family, despite maybe a parent's discomfort with having the child die at home, that they overcome that because they know that's what their child wants. And so to be able to come alongside a family and support them in that is some of the best medicine I've ever done. How impactful this moment for us, although it's special, it's another day at work for us. For these families, they're going to remember these interactions for the rest of their lives. And as pediatricians, giving parents and the families our time, that's how we can love them. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bell, for our general pediatricians, it's likely that when the family has a child die, they'll also have other siblings and the pediatricians will continue to see these families year after year. Do you have any tips for how they can continue to serve them after they've lost a child? 
Yes, it actually had the opportunity. I was in private practice setting for about 23 years before I started doing palliative care full time. And again, that is a long-term relationship. You know, I would see siblings come in after we had lost one of their older sibling. And it often takes looking for the cues that there's something amiss. And I'll give you an example. I had a, a patient in my practice that died from cancer. And I took care, the younger sibling was probably two or three years younger. And all of a sudden, this mom kept bringing this child in over and over again. And it's kind of those pediatric visits that I'm worried they're not eating or they're not sleeping or they have a tummy ache or they complain of their legs hurting at night. But it was just repeated visits, you know, because they've had a child die with cancer. You do some basic screening to kind of reassure them and show them the growth chart that they're growing fine. This is all really reassuring. But at one point, I was like, there's something more to this. This is a resurgence of grief. And so I just opened it out there. It seems like you're really worried. And is there something else going on? And that mom broke down and cried in my office and said, I just have to get her past this age. And the sibling was the age that the other child had died. And this is years later, but that was how it presented in the private pediatric practice setting. And then once we were able to talk about that, then we were able to encourage her. We were able to get her set back up with some counseling because grief doesn't come as an even thing. It comes in waves. And sometimes the triggers can be a food or a song on the radio or a certain place they go. And people need to have a place of comfort that they can come back and talk about that because sometimes people who are not grieving don't understand well you need to be getting your life back together well you know that's easier said than done sometimes <laughs> and so to be able to to support a family through that is important and it shows how much of an impact our general pediatricians can have with these families because they're going to have an opportunity to take care of them for years and years to come absolutely so, Dr. Bell, this has been such a great conversation about a difficult topic. As we're getting short on time, I thought we might reiterate some of the take-home points. So for me, palliative care focuses in on managing pain and other symptoms, supporting caregiver needs, and coordinating care. Everything's based on the patient's needs, not necessarily the prognosis. You know, one of the first things I learned in medical school is that patients don't read the book. And you can look at what you expect to be symptoms with a certain disease, but each individual patient is an individual patient. And each family has a different dynamic, and they may have different coping skills or may not have good coping skills that we have to work with. And so it is about the whole patient and the whole family unit. And that's the key. And I think you do some of that in medicine, but never more or as thoroughly as you do in palliative care. That's really great, Dr. Bell. I think also always ask questions. I think that's something that I definitely want to take away is no matter how uncomfortable we may perceive the question to be, just asking the question and taking the cues from the family and how we can support them along this journey. Yeah, and listening is a big part of that. Because you don't want to ask a question and put the answer in their mouth. So yes. being willing to have moments of silence and, and allow families time to process what you're saying and to think about their answer. And that answer may come days later, a month later. That's okay. Well, very good. Thank you to both of you for joining me for today's conversation. We hope this is just the introduction to talking more and more about palliative care and other similar pediatric topics. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. 
If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcasts at augusta.edu. Check out our show notes for more information and an opportunity to receive free CME credit sponsored by the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.